Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 7th of February 2022 and this is episode 241. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Belgian archaeologist Simon Verdigan about his work in recovering First World War casualties from battlefields in Belgium. Simon spoke to me over the interweb from his office in Flanders. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and in particular battlefield archaeology? I'm uh, Simon Verdigan. Um, I'm a Belgian Flemish archaeologist uh, specialised in the First World War archaeology. Um, my interest in the First World War started, I think, during high school um, when I went with my class, as many students in Flanders and also in, from the UK. Uh, we visited the battlefields and, yeah, that was my, that sparked my interest. And from there it grew it, and it started growing and growing. Um, and I first studied uh, history at university. Uh, I wanted to do something with, of course, the First World War as well uh, as my thesis, but that didn't work out because um, I didn't find a, a professor who wanted to join me in that. Um, so I did something a bit different, uh, graduated, but still wanted to continue with that First World War and uh, try to find my way uh, into it. And that's when I saw a documentary about uh, First World War archaeology. Um, I think it was on um, UK television. It was uh, with Paul Reed. Um, on, I think uh, they were following the diggers uh, at the Boozinger uh, site. And that started my interest in the First World War archaeology. So I did another master in archaeology as well. And that's when I, uh, well, of course, I started as a junior archaeologist and did all kinds of periods from uh, Bronze Age, Iron Age, Middle Ages, Roman period, um, until I had enough experience as a professional professional archaeologist to uh, to start my uh, well my to start uh, archaeological excavations as a as a project leader as a head archaeologist in First World War of on first First World War battlefields, um, and I've been doing that since 2012 now. So this year will be my 10th year that I'll be excavating on the First World War battlefields in Flanders. So uh, that's how I got into it. So I wonder what, let's start at the beginning. So what is the objective of the archaeological recovery of First World War casualties from former Great War battlefields? What do you seek to do once you find a body? Um, well, it's a bit of a twofold, of course, because uh, um, at an archaeological excavation, um, um, we also look at the context and um, uh, to, to learn more about uh, how that body ended up there, uh, how the casualty was, was he buried or did he just was left behind on, on the battlefield? Did he end up in a bomb crater or in a, in a trench or in a field grave? And so there's a lot of archaeological and historical data that we tried to retrieve from, um, from the excavation. But of course, the, the most important part is to uh, collect as much data as possible um, from the person itself. So uh, we are looking at um, nationality, um, unit if possible, and then of course the, the identity. And 
that's the, the main goal in the end uh, is to try and um, identify the soldier that is excavated or uncovered by us at that moment. Um, we, we do that by uh, recording as much detail as possible. So we use different techniques. Uh, we, uh, we photograph uh, each step so that we can always go back uh, afterwards. Uh, we record the location of the finds by GPS um, so that we always can um, tell if, if something was, for example, stripes are found on, on the left arm, right arm, upper arm, lower arm. Um, same with uh, personal stuff, if, if it was in his pockets or not, that makes a difference uh, in the later process of identification. Uh, if it was, if we can prove it was actually with him or just next to him, um, that can make a, a kind of a difference in, in the end as well. Um, but that's the main thing, um, trying to identify the person that is uh, lying in front of us. It's a very difficult task. And fortunately, it's not, um, it doesn't happen too often. If we look at the, uh, the amount of bodies, casualties that we already recovered and the number of identifications that happened, it's a rather low percentage, but we're trying to improve techniques and hopefully um, also there's a better communication uh, we're growing communication uh, between us and the authorities, and hopefully that will lead to more identifications in the future as well. So one of the things that's always interested me is this, if you find a body, uh, obviously, or human remains in Belgium, what's the procedure that you have to go through? How do you know it's a First World War casualty rather than, than a victim of crime? Well, there's indeed a set procedure that we need to, to follow. There's a kind of a protocol. Um, the first thing that we need to do is contact the police and they need to be or to come to the site and together with us have to establish that it's not a crime scene, but actually um, a casualty from the First World War. In most of the cases, that's quite easy because there's a lot of equipment, uh, military equipment from the First World War on or beside him. Uh, we can also often on that on the moment that the police arrives already see uh, some kind of a context uh, if he's in a in a trench or something like that it's already obvious that, um, that it's a first world war casualty um, but that's indeed uh, to exclude the possibility of um, of a crime scene uh, we need to um, evaluate the, the location together with the police once that's done um, we start the archaeological process uh, so that's excavation on site. Uh, in most of the cases, ideal situations, we have a physical anthropologist with us on site as well, a specialist in human body and skeletons, uh, so that we he can help us or he or she can help us with, um, especially in difficult situations where the body isn't complete, complete uh, or scattered or dispersed. We it's very uh, useful to have a specialist with us who can tell what body parts we're still missing um, uh, and then uh, of course we record contacts as I said and all the all the finds and then the body gets exhumed also every step is still recorded by photographs we make 3d models and stuff like that during the whole process often two, two or three times um, because often there's different layers you first want to know all the finds uh, on the body so you photograph that but once you removed the finds there's often other details that that open up, for example, the, his um, stature or how he's holding his, his arm, legs, and stuff like that, he's, how he's deposited uh, into the, the field grave or the trench or how he ended up in a bomb crater. All those details uh, 
are uh, recorded. And then we um, we take everything back to our, our lab, our depot, where everything is cleaned. Uh, the casualty itself, the bones will be cleaned, vines will be cleaned. And then the, the human remains will uh, go to the physical anthropologist again, who will um, make like a biological profile of the person. So he looks at um, uh, sex, of course, First World War casualties are almost always uh, male, but they nevertheless uh, research that um, we can uh, look at age, uh, stature, um, diseases, cause of that, um, all kinds of, of details that can make a difference again uh, while uh, doing the process of identification uh, later on. So that's one part of the of the final file that we make from from that person. And then we uh, look at, at the finds, so the clean finds, we make a catalog of that. And we look at if there's a, a shoulder title, if there's uniform parts, equipment, uh, if any inscriptions are found on the equipment, because often, uh, especially in leather equipment, it's easy, more easy to find than, other, than on other pieces, but uh, soldiers often wrote down the service number or initials on, on their pieces, or even just um, a regimental abbreviation is enough to get a lead into who he might be. Um, so that's more of like the historical profile that we make from him um, together with the context. And that's all put together in a file. And then everything, the remains, the finds, and that file and the photographs of everything are handed over back to the police. And the police will then uh, hand that over to the Belgian War Grave Commission, who then um, hand it over to the relevant Nation, so that can be the Commonwealth War Grave Commission for all Commonwealth casualties, the Deutsche Volksbund for um, German casualties, or uh, French um, authorities, so French casualty. And then it's in their hands. So uh, we we do not take DNA samples. We do do not decide if that's necessary or not. That's up to the the nations themselves. Um, we do not contact family or anything. So we just make a file with as much information as possible so that the authorities can do their uh, final research. That's the main job and that's about um, how we work. So obviously part of this process is probably recovery of World War One munitions. Is archaeology dangerous as a result of all this unexploded ordnance that you see in, you know, in farmers' fields when I've been to the battlefields and also that you must recover from bodies as well? Um, I wouldn't say it's dangerous but of course we we need to work with a with certain care and um, look out what what we what we um, what we encounter um, but in most of the cases uh, we have um, an EOD specialist with us um, especially on on the larger scaled excavations there's always uh, one present uh, each day um, he detects the fields and, and marks the locations where he thinks there might be uh, ammunition. Um, if we encounter them, we can uh, call him in and he removes it for us. So there's always uh, someone who knows what to do with the, the, the UXOs that we, we encounter. Um, but of course, compared to other locations, you cannot just um, like blind, start digging blind and, and not expecting um, anything. Um, well, maybe that's the, the advantage of, of digging as an archaeologist because you always take a certain care uh, for the features and the finds that you might encounter. So this, it almost never happens that we just start um, hammering down in, in, in the soil. So 
encountering or the chances of encountering those EOD and uh, ammunition uh, uh, helps as an archaeologist because you're always kind of careful. Um, and of course, yeah, the, the specialist is with us to remove it and then we can continue um, our job. On on the body itself, um, the most common is, is to find um, rifle ammunition, which is still uh, live, of course, but if you treat it carefully, it's less dangerous than the bigger pieces. Um, so those are often removed ourselves. Um, they also have some archaeological information because there's often a stamp that we can read on the back uh, with the production dates, which can eliminate, for example, if you have a, an ammunition uh, or a rifle ammunition with a stamp of production 1916, you know the casualty wasn't killed in 1914, so you can eliminate um, a certain uh, amount of, of names on the list. Uh, so that helps uh, as well. Um, hand grenades, of course, can be found on bodies as well, but are often removed. Uh, we, of course, if the body was left behind, everything is still on it, and then, then you do find them. But that doesn't uh, happen as often as, as the rifle ammunition. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a twofold because all the um, all the ammunition is to certain um, uh, to a certain level also um, valuable as archaeological or historical information. So we just we don't just want to remove it. We also want to know uh, what it is, um, if it was fired or not. Um, and that helps us to to create the picture of of that location historically. And what's the sort of scale of recovery of First World War casualties from the battlefields in Belgium? How many sorts of uh, bodies are recovered each year? I think that might be quite a difficult question to answer. But um, I, I, for instance, how many have you recovered uh, in the last sort of 12 months? Um, I think on average there's about 20 to 25 per year. Um, of course, there are years that um, there's, there's less uh, found. But if you look at... Um, the last, let's say, 25 to 30 years, there's an average of about 20 to 25 years, uh, um, bodies per year. Um, like in 2018, there was a, there were over 100 found, but that was because one of one excavation where there was 100 bodies recovered. <clears throat> On other years, uh, like I think 2021, there were only 10 to 15 bodies. And um, so it, it really varies. Uh, depending on, on the amount of, of archaeological excavations happening on um, infrastructure work happening in the area. Um, so, but the average is about that. We, we now um, cataloged all the finds or the body recovery since uh, 1998, and there's about 715 on those 25 years. So tell us about Hill 80. I think this is a project you've been working on in the last uh, few years. Firstly, where is Hill 80 and how did you come to excavate there? Um, Hill 80 is um, a field on the edge of the village of Weitschaten or Whitesheet, as it's also known uh, for the British. Um, it was an open field, like really just next to the centre of the town, which was... Um, Still, just a, a pasture, a pasture since uh, since the war. So um, there was a very uneven uh, ground uh, surface. Uh, because of that, we knew that uh, since the war, there was not that much um, that happened there. Um, and it was planned that um, um, housing estates was to be built there. So as it goes in Flanders and in the rest of Europe, if um, infrastructure or housing estates or whatever are planned on, a, on an area, the archaeologists need to come in first and check if archaeology is there. And if it is, it needs to be excavated. 
So we did trial trenching in, I think, 2015, and uh, we immediately saw there was a, a high potential archaeologically uh, with first of all traces in that in that field. Um, we found trenches, we found the remains of um, houses and barns and the mill, which was there before the war. Um, and we even found evidence of trenches connected to those houses, so that those houses were incorporated in uh, the defensive German defensive system of the of the village. And we also found two or three um, locations with human remains. With one, we expected that it was a mass grave for German soldiers. With estimations back then, were fifteen to twenty soldiers that might be buried together in that in that field grave. Um, so we. Um, yeah, we did the trial trenching. We wrote an advice to the government that it needed to be excavated. They agreed. And the next step is for the um, the builder itself um, that they needed to contract uh, an archaeological firm to excavate the field before they could start construction. But there were was discussions about um, about uh, the costs, of course, um, and that's why they started to look at alternatives of uh, ways of building which would save the archaeology but not completely save it um, so we started to look at alternatives to excavate it without um, well as complete as possible and that's why we um, we started the crowdfunding so that we is uh, me together with uh, professor peter doyle and uh, german historian um, robin schaefer and uh, the three of us organize ourselves um, and we started to that that crowdfunding I will think it started in the summer of 2017 um, and by the end of 2017 we collected about 180,000 euros from all over the world to to excavate the field um, as crowd a crowdfunding works we had to have a lot of perks people need to have something in return for the money they invest into the crowdfunding so there was tours during the excavation people could join uh, the, the field team as well for one or, or several days uh, we did online um, updates uh, and all kinds of other stuff so yeah um, we then excavated it in 2018 it was a three-month excavation with um hundreds of people visiting during the excavation and on tours. And uh, yeah, I think 100 to 150 people that joined uh, the excavation team for one or several days as well. So it was that that whole thing was a success. People were engaged. Uh, it was fun to do. It was fun to see the reactions of people following the excavation and being enthusiastic about what we found. Um, that's how it all came together when we did that big excavation in 2018. So what period does Hill 80 date from? What sort of, what sort of battles was it involved in? Mm -hmm. um, the largest, um, well, there's three phases that we expected to find. So there was a 1914 battle, October, November 1914, first Battle of Ypres, um, when um, some... Uh, British units, but also French units and Indian units were involved in fighting around uh, the village of, of Weitzgate and Messine. Um, so you have the, that famous picture of, of the, I think it's the 57th uh, wild rifles that were manning a trench on the on the edge of the village. Um, There's also this uh, the London Scottish that were involved just south of the village. Um, so Hilati was on for that period when the British units were involved just behind the Allied lines. And uh, when the fighting happened on the field itself, 
that part of the line was taken over by the French. So the main fighting in 1914 on the field uh, was by French units, um, and they were facing Bavarian units from, from Germany. Um, so that we found a lot of evidence from that. During the excavation, uh, we found five um, French casualties that were left behind on the field. They were not buried. They were um, Some of them were dumped in a, in a large pond, and others were just uh, dispersed remains that were left behind on the battlefield. Um, and based on, on the, um, the fired cartridges, we also found the movement over the field of the French retreating um, to the north. Um, and those mass graves that I talked about uh, during the excavation, we found out that they were also from the Bavarian units that um, took that part of, of the village in those uh, days in the end of October and the first days of November 1940. I think uh, we found 70-something 70, 70 German soldiers on, on just that small field, and about 40 to 50 of them were Bavarian soldiers from that were killed in 1914. So they were buried in at least two mass graves. One of them contained 24, the other 18 uh, soldiers, and some were even left behind in the trench where they were killed. And so there's an early trench that we found as well with some German soldiers in there, um, and they were left behind. The trench was closed or unused or disused since, since that battle. Um, and then the next phase, the, the German units, um, yeah, they, um, they built their trench network in the village and they incorporated um, all the buildings that were on the field into their big trench system. So that's the rather quiet period, 19, end of 1914 till uh, 1917. And then the, the let's say the, the stronghold of the village grew, but there was not much fighting going on in that area itself. And then, of course, you have the big um, attack on 7 June of 1917 uh, with um, the mines exploding and, and the Battle of Messine Ridge. And it was um, both the Irish divisions that attacked um, White Sheet side by side. Um, and we expected to find some evidence of that as well. Uh, but because we knew there was at least one soldier, the British soldier that we found that couldn't be killed in 1914 based on his equipment. Um, so we expected to have evidence of that 1917 battle, but we didn't find any, well, maybe few, but not much. Um, looking at the historical uh, records, apparently um, the units that attacked from that um, side, they um, made a turn around and attacked the village from the side and not directly on into the field uh, where we were excavating. So that might explain um, why the, there's a lack of evidence for that period. Um, of course, then the British took over and they um, made a few changes on, on the trench network within our field. And then you have the 1918, uh, the spring offensive. And apparently, and we didn't expect that in uh, when we started the excavation, but all, most all of the British evidence that we found uh, on the field was from that battle. So we're talking April 1918. Um, and we found about... 12 uh, soldiers that were killed there and were still lying in the trench that they um, held for a few days trying to hold back uh, the German offensive. Um, we found a South African as well who was also involved with the 9th Scottish Division um, who were then part of this, uh, the, the Scottish Division um, defending a white sheet uh, during those days in April uh, 1918. And when we plot all those um, again with all the fired cartridges and all the uh, we found a few insignia separated from um, 
from bodies, so not uh, not in, in relation to any body, but from um, I think there were um, units from the 37th division. Um, they were holding that uh, that line together as well. And we, when we plot that all on, on our field, we again see the defensive line, which uh, indeed uh, is very similar to what we have from the historical sources. So uh, unexpectedly, the main uh, British uh, involvement on that field was from April 1918. I think that's utterly fascinating. And it's one of those things that you just think, you can tell all this from this piece of field nearly 100, over 100 years later, and that's always amazing. Did you find anything unusual in the trenches, or anything that surprised you? Um, not necessarily. Um, I think the most um, striking thing that we found um, in, in, in that 1914 trench was the two German soldiers who were um, lying there side by side, um, looking at the, their bodies, they must have been hit by a, an artillery shell. Um, and the most striking thing was that when we, we started looking um, at their equipment, um, because they were killed together and maybe buried by some of the, the earth falling back down, they still had everything, all their personal stuff as well. And they both had um, pocket watches and uh, um, they, were, they stopped at exact the same hour. So both the watches had the same hour. Uh, I think it was 5 to 11 in the morning or in the evening. We won't know, of course, but that was evidence of the fact that they indeed were killed together uh, by the same um, explosion. I think that was one of the most striking things that we encountered in that, in that trench. So tell me, what projects are you currently working on? And could you just tell us a bit about your Skylark project? Skylarks is a non-profit organization that we... Um, we started, I think, about two years ago now. Um, we want to support um, archaeological excavations uh, and uh, research here in Flanders with, with the nonprofit. Um, and we also started a, um, a research project in the summer of 2020. So, uh, no, at the end of 2020, sorry, um, which was subsidized by the Flemish government. Um, it's a synthesis project about archaeology um, that. Um, aims to bring back uh, or bring together information um, from 30 years of archaeology in Flanders. So uh, that it's an annual subsidy um, granted by the Flemish government, often um, divided over different projects. So we got a part of that uh, money for our project. And there's all kinds of, um, of subjects from um, Iron Age to Age to Middle Ages. And we did one about First World War Trends in 2019, and now with Skylights, we are doing one um, about the recovery of um, casualties from the First World War. So we are bringing back, uh, bringing together all the data that we can find archaeologically. Um, so that's from the 1998, the start of, or the beginning of, of um, First World War archaeology in Flanders. Um, and we are looking at all that information and trying to analyze it into um yeah, about to, to, to learn more about um how they were buried how they ended up there why they became missing um all those questions that uh, of course are already studied a lot historically but now we are trying to um add uh, the the archaeological evidence as an extra source to that historical um historical uh, evidence um there's a lot to learn about that because yeah, it's it's there. Uh, there's no question about um, 
about or, or you cannot discuss uh, anything if it's in front of you if the body is lying this way or that way is he holding um or still having all his equipment or not if he's buried in a certain certain way or not um and all that extra evidence uh, hopefully because we're still in the middle of the project uh, we can um learn more about uh, yeah how soldiers uh, handled their uh, fallen comrades and how um, field graves got lost uh, over time and in battles and why um, soldiers were in one case buried on the battlefield and in other cases were taken back to the to the rear and all that kind of stuff and that's the archaeological part of the project and we're doing that together with the Inflanders Fields Museum and Ghent University and they're also looking at um, the data of the missing in the landscape so um, they are plotting all uh, the Inflanders Fields Museum has a a database with all the casualties from the First World War from day to day. Um, and we're now trying to put them into the landscape and see where the hotspots were uh, during a certain date where and try to uh, identify what happened there and why they got lost. And if you put that in a, in a graph, you can see all those peaks. Of course, the big peaks with all the big battles, but there's also a lot of small peaks with with rates and stuff like that. And if you look at those peaks and then you try to identify why that happens, uh, you can um, mark certain areas um, which are at a certain phase, maybe archeologically interesting when something happens there infrastructure wise, we need to take more care because the chances of finding bodies is sometimes higher in a certain area because a lot of a lot more things happen there. Um, it's a bit difficult to get, get it across uh, by talking about, in the end, we'll have a lot of um, graphs and maps and stuff to explain it a lot better um, when we are ready. Um, one of the other things that Ghent University is doing as well is uh, for the third battle of Ypres, for example, dividing the entire battlefield into squares, um, like the limits of um, the area that needed to be attacked by one division. So you have the left boundary and the right boundary, and then um, they look at the advances day per day and then at the casualties that happened during that day. And so we can also calculate, of course, it's uh, it's our estimations and it's a bit st statistical. It's not a 100% accurate number, but we can look at the, the human cost of a certain um, area to be conquered or not. And then we also look at if somebody was uh, killed there, um, did he got missing or was he taken to the back or was he um, taken to the other side as a, as a wounded or killed soldier by the enemy and then taken back there or buried there. So that's the things that we try to do. I hope it's, <laughs> it's a bit uh, clear how we try to explain it. Um, but um, we will, of course, um, try to um, share the results uh, when we are finished uh, with, uh, with articles and, and, and maybe lectures and stuff like that. That's the main project that we're working on at the moment and of course now and then we have uh, archaeological excavations that are uh, taking place uh, during the year as well so that's another occupation of us as well my final question Simon is where can people learn more about your research and your various activities um we have a website like skylarts has a website which is uh, skylarts.org um where we try to update uh, about the project as a um a small part about uh, the research project as well um, and hopefully when it's finished we can share some more on, on that as well 
Um, Haliti also has a website, which is haliti.com, with some information on uh, on the excavation. We're still working on that uh, final report there. So once that's finished, uh, we of course will share more um, and hopefully have because it's mandatory to do it in in, in Dutch. But we hope to to publish something in in English as well uh, eventually. And of course, um, you can follow us as, uh, on on Twitter as well. Uh, my personal handle handle. I update uh, sometimes when I'm on the fields. I share uh, pictures of, of the excavations. There's also the Skylarks handle, which updates on the project. And there's a Haliti handle as well. So you can follow us there as well to, to get some, uh, some regular updates. Simon, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>